Heaven, I pray that you would uh, bless us as your word is proclaimed. Lord, I pray that you'd make me faithful to proclaim only the words of the Good Shepherd. And Lord, I pray that we would all be faithful by your power to hear them as the voice of our Good Shepherd, to trust your promises, to heed your commands and warnings, to be comforted by your comforts. And I pray that you would do this in Christ's name through the work of your spirit. Amen. Well, last week, we took a bird's eye view of the book of Judges, a book which chronicles hundreds of years of the history of the people of Israel. We looked at this book to get a sense of what life was like for Naomi and Ruth and Elimelech, whose lives we were following in the book of Ruth. We saw the pain and suffering and the lawlessness and unrighteousness and idolatry and adultery which Israel committed against the Lord God who had rescued her from Egypt. We saw the shame that Israel experienced because of that and also how the Lord was faithful to redeem her time and again from that shame in spite of her unfaithfulness toward him. The Lord paints a picture of the shame which Naomi and Elimelech experienced. Ten years of suffering and shame are jammed into the five verses which we will be focusing on today. Ten years of suffering and shame jammed into five verses. And you and I are not strangers to shame and suffering. The shame and pain and suffering of living in a world which is under the curse of sin. A world which is stained with the marks and effects and judgments of sin. A Christ has borne the curse of sin for his covenant people, which are those who belong to him by faith. Nevertheless, we still experience the effects of this curse in this world as we wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to return and to judge the world and banish all sin and all its curses and consequences from the world. His delay in bringing about this is due to his commitment to wait until all the sinners which he has purchased with his blood will come to faith and repentance. He is patient, but that day will come. In the meantime, those redeemed by Christ, those who are in covenant with him, will experience shame and suffering. And you will experience different kinds of shame and suffering and trials. There's the shame of facing your own sin of recognizing that you have sinned and although the Lord has paid for your sins with his life and you're no, no longer under the judgment and curse of God, you often face the shame and suffering which is caused by your own sin. So you've lied to your husband and though he forgives you, it was embarrassing to admit it. And you have to deal with the fact that it is now harder for him to trust you. Or you lost your temper at work and it cost you your job. And you know that the Lord forgives you and that he is committed to transforming you and making you more holy even in this regard. However, you still have the shame of telling your wife and kids and maybe unbelieving parents about what has happened. So how do you walk as a forgiven and beloved child of God in the middle of that shame? How does the Lord sustain and comfort and redeem his covenant people when they experience that kind of shame? But there's also the kind of shame and suffering and trial that comes upon a believer because of the sin of other people. 
There's the suffering a wife experiences because of the sinful choices of her husband. There's the shame associated with that. There's the extra burden added to her life. The things which make her life more difficult because of that. And so how does a forgiven and adopted child of God walk in the middle of that? How does the Lord sustain and comfort his covenant people through that suffering and trial and shame? There's also the kind of shame and suffering and trial that comes while waiting for the Lord to fulfill promises which he has actually made to you in the word. When the fulfillment of those promises seems so tardy that it seems that the Lord is actually not faithful, but you know that he is. And then there's the pain that we're not always aware of how to interpret our suffering. What does this mean? Why did this happen? And we read and study and preach these books, including the book of Ruth, to grow in our knowledge of the Lord and of his redemption of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord's redemption of Naomi and Ruth and even of the dead Elimelech and the redemption which he will bring through the, the events of their lives, the, the redemption that he'll bring to Israel as a whole, it helps us to better know and treasure the Lord who is also our rock and our redeemer. So in order to properly stand in wonder and awe and worship of the redemption which our Lord brought about for Naomi and Ruth and Elimelech, we need to understand the fullness of their suffering and shame which he found them in. And so in order to do that, we're going to read our text for this morning. We're going to read from Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to be reading the first five verses. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband." The first point I want to bring to your attention from this passage of Scripture is that the house of bread was without bread. So what was it that caused Elimelech to leave his family, to leave his people, to leave his property, and to move to Moab? Now I wonder if you can see the irony here. The name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. This is where they had received an inheritance from the Lord, where his family had received an inheritance from the Lord. And so that was its benefit. That was his inheritance's benefit. There were likely other benefits about Bethlehem, but the benefit of Bethlehem was that it produced bread. And this was the inheritance given by the Lord to the family that Elimelech came from. The land was divided by God as an inheritance to the children of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And this was their portion of it. Each son of Jacob received an inheritance of the land from the Lord. And they were not merely considered Jacob's sons. 
these 12 sons. But the Lord was giving them an inheritance as if they were his own sons. And so you heard silly stories about grown children marking their names on valuable items in their parents' home to claim them as their inheritance when their parents die and the possessions are divided up. So you'd, you'd pick the things that are most valuable to you. You'd pick based on the benefit of those things. So a child who loves money might put their name on the back of an antique china cabinet that they are convinced could easily be sold for a good amount of cash. A child who loves to sew might put her name on the underside of a mom's sewing machine. The benefit that another adult child might seek is nostalgia. Might want the benefit of warm feelings of memories brought by an item which no one would actually pay money for. And so the benefit of inheriting Bethlehem from the Lord was that it produced bread. That was its thing. The whole land of Israel was supposed to produce bread for the covenant people of God. In fact, the Lord promised this to them as they were inheriting it. It was a conditional promise, though. The Lord promised that if they walked in his ways, that he would ensure that the land would produce the food needed to sustain and cause his people to flourish. That they would be provided for him in this place he had set aside for them to worship and enjoy his love. But that they could expect no such blessing if they turned to idols. We've already spent time in the book of Judges, which described the faithlessness and spiritual adultery of Israel during the days of Elimelech and Naomi. It was a shame now to be from Bethlehem and to be without bread. It would have been akin to being known in your town as the only one who ever made it to an Ivy League college and then to flunk out of that school. And if your nickname around town was Ivy League and then to return back home and have to tell people, I flunked out. This book is silent about the cause of the famine. It is silent. We're not told whether this suffering was brought on as a punishment for idolatry or if it was just part of the ordinary providence of God which caused his people to wait for him to provide things, to call on him, and then him faithfully providing what they had asked for. We're not told Israel was never faithful enough to claim that God was being unfaithful to that promise. But God so often provided grain for them when they were unfaithful that it's not even possible to know whether this was the kind of suffering which was the result of their sin and the kind of shame and suffering that they deserved or if it was just them waiting for the Lord to keep his promises. While other people mocked you for waiting for him to keep his promises. So the nations would mock and taunt Israel for calling out to the Lord and waiting for him to bless them. So imagine the added sting of receiving those taunts and to know that if it was a punishment, you would have actually deserved it. So this is similar to the shame of being mocked as a Christian by non-believers in your life who might point out sin in your life. And they're not wrong. Or perhaps somebody mocking you while you are suffering from disease or the death of a loved one and mocking you for continuing to be a Christian, calling out to the Lord for comfort. 
Didn't God promise you joy? It would be the experience of shame of not enjoying those blessings, which actually are the blessings of the people of God. Perhaps wrestling with fear and doubt. And somebody said, didn't God promise peace and joy and rest? And yet you wait, trusting for him to provide what he has promised, even though it might seem long in coming. Elimelech and Naomi, heirs of the land of the house of bread, feared that famine enough that they sold their inheritance and moved to a place far away to find prosperity and security. And they left in shame. The shame of losing their inheritance from the Lord. The land which he had promised to their fathers. It brings us to our second point, which is this. Leaving the household of God. This wasn't the first time that the covenant people of God felt pressure to leave the promised land. In fact, it was kind of the thing that happened. They were pressured to leave the land of inheritance, to avoid suffering and famine. The patriarchs did this. And this is actually how Israel ended up in Egypt, you'll remember. But they always longed to be back in Canaan, in the promised land of rest. Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons, actually, he was the one who led them to seek shelter in Egypt from famine. He insisted that when Israel left Egypt and traveled to Canaan, that his bones be buried in the promised land. They longed to be there when they couldn't be there. Now, there are many opinions about whether Elimelech sinned when he took his family out of Israel to escape the famine. There are clues in the text, but the text itself doesn't permit us to be certain that it wasn't sinful for him. I want to show you some of those clues. First, you notice that even though the word sojourn indicates no desire to settle there, like sojourn means this is temporary, by the end of verse 2, we're told that they remained there. It was a settled choice. So whatever his first intentions are, once he arrived, he didn't appear to be taking opportunity to return. Next clue is that the names given to his sons were not Israelite names, marking them as Israelites, but they were Moabite names. Also notice that the sons married Moabite wives. Now there was provision in God's word for an Israelite to marry somebody who wasn't born into the people of Israel, but who had become an Israelite by converting to the Lord. But this isn't what happened here. These women had not become lovers of God and of his people. What's different from the earlier times when Israel and its uh, patriarchs left Canaan because of famine is, is, first of all, the land was promised to one day be their inheritance. And now in a limit-like state, that had already happened. And second, and this is most important in the difference, Elimelech was not merely leaving the land of promise. He was leaving the people of God's promise. He wasn't simply leaving the house, you could say, of God's covenant love. He was leaving the household of God's covenant love. In previous generations, the whole family of God remained together when they fled a famine. Now, if he had to do it, it would have been a shame. If he chose to do it, not merely to survive, but to keep prosperity, it would have been a shame as well as a sin. 
Because if Elimelech was a righteous man, he would have longed to be with the people of God, to enjoy the love of God together with the people of God. He would have longed to help them enjoy the Lord and also to benefit from them as they helped him and his family enjoy the covenant love of the Lord. And to make matters worse, they were not merely live, leaving the household of God, but they joined themselves to a people which officially hated the Lord and who officially hated them and their people. One could not be a good Moabite and love the people of Israel. It was an officially un-Moabite thing to do. They were committed to the destruction of the covenant people of God. And so it's not accidental or unimportant that the boys are said to have taken Moabite wives. In those days, to declare oneself a Moabite was to declare that you belong to the gods of Moab. The two things were the same, to their false gods and idols. And actually, to renounce those gods would have been akin to renouncing your citizenship in Moab. In Ruth 1, 6 to 17, we'll read that next week. It's clear that Naomi speaks to these women, not as women who had converted to worship the Lord. She's speaking to her daughters-in-law. She's not speaking to them as women who had converted to worship the Lord. He, she is talking to them about as if they were women who still loved and worshipped Moab's gods. The Lord has demanded that his people never marry those who are not part of his covenant. Not to marry people who did not also belong to the Lord. Not to give their hearts and bodies to another whose heart did not belong to the Lord. We can see this in Exodus 34 as the Lord is preparing them to enter into the land of Canaan. After he had rescued them to make them his people. Exodus 34 verse 12 says, Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. We can see in 1 Kings 11, which happens many hundreds of years after, we see this. Sort of a summary of the commands that God gave to his people. It says, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Actually, we have a similar command for the people of God in the New Testament, the church. For the good of our turning and keeping our hearts on the affections of Christ. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39 says this, A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives. This is speaking of somebody who might become a widow and now has, an, has the option to remarry and can select a husband. A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And in the time of the judges, which is the time when Naomi and Elimelech lived, we can see the wisdom of the Lord was rejected, and we can see the results. Let's read in Judges 3, 5 to 6. So we've read the warnings, 
And we've seen God's people reject the warnings. Now let's see what the result was. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. Women such as Rahab, who happened to be a close ancestor of Elimelech, were Canaanite women by birth, but who joined themselves to the Lord and to the household of the Lord and who were then married by godly men. And this was celebrated and beautiful in Israel's history. But that's not what happened in the case of these young men. The hearts of these women was outside the household of God. So that was a sign that the hearts of these men was outside of the household of God as well. The family of God, the household of God, the covenant people of God, Israel in the Old Testament, and the church of many nations now, it exists in part as a way to enjoy the love and affection and promises of God, to experience the joy of being adopted undeservedly into his family, to have your affections set on the Lord, automatically sets your affections on his people, on his household. So it means that God works a desire within you for your own household to be a household of God. Consider this. A man whose greatest affections are for the Lord will see his affections, his attractions in potential wives. He'll see those change. A woman who marries a poor man can hardly be accused of loving money above all things. You'd make that accusation and you'd be laughed out of the building. No one would take you seriously if you accused her of loving money above all things if she married a poor man. Likewise, it's not easy to accuse a woman who marries a man who does not belong to the Lord. It's not easy to accuse her of desiring to know the Lord above all things. Marriage, like the church, the family of God, was designed to be a gift from God to turn your affections toward God. And that the affection of others for Christ would inflame your affection for Christ. And so a person who doesn't long to gather with the church to worship the Lord can hardly be accused of treasuring him above all things. The heart of a person who has received the love of the Lord is described in the Psalms, particularly in the Psalms of Ascent, as a heart which longs to be together with the family of God, to enjoy him and worship him together. And that's why, even if Naomi and Elimelech had no choice but to leave the people of God, if they were righteous, it would have been a sorrow to them. And they would have longed to return and be restored to the covenant people of God. To suffer together with the people of God is better than to thrive apart from them. This is the heart of somebody who knows the love of God in Christ. And that's why we long for the restrictions on gathering because of this virus. We long for those restrictions to be lifted so that we can enjoy the affections of the Lord together. So we can hope in the promises of God purchased by the blood of Christ 
together so we can hear his warnings together. Naomi was experiencing the bitterness of being apart from the people of God. This is something that naturally is true of all humans, not that desire, but to be outside of the people of God. We are all born outside of the family of God, enemies of God, outside of his household because of our sin. Not only are we outside of the household of God, in our hearts we do not have love for God and we do not long to be part of his family. But God graciously calls undeserving people from outside of his household into his family to enjoy his love and affection. Naomi, though she was part of the family of God, was suffering the effects of being apart from them. That was part of her shame, which the Lord would silently, by his invisible hand of providence, work to redeem. Brings us to our third point, which is this. Death threatens to rob us of God's blessings. Death threatens to rob us of God's blessings. See, death is now added to the sorrow of Naomi. Not only is she outside of the people of God, she's away from them because of a famine. They've lost their inheritance. They left, they've lost essentially their claim to their stake in the land of God's promise. But now her husband has died and her sons have died. And before she had any grandchildren. She would have experienced the grief of losing a beloved husband. She would have also experienced the grief of losing her sons. She would have experienced the pain and lack of security of being a woman in the ancient world without a husband or without a, the pension plan of having grandchildren. And those are all true. But it's not the focus of the pain of this book. When Malon and Killian died without children, the inheritance which the Lord had given to Elimelech could not be passed on. It meant that death would end their claim to the blessings of God. God had given this portion of the, of the land to his family, to this family as an inheritance, and now the inheritance of God was, not, was, was only good until death. Famine had pushed him to sell his inheritance, but now it seemed as if there was no hope of redeeming it. Death would end that blessing from God. The inheritance of God was actually intended, though, to be irrevocable. It was something which was intended to endure past death. When God gave the land to the sons of Jacob, it was to be an enduring inheritance, an enduring blessing that death could not end. It was supposed to endure past a man's or a family's death. Passing it on to children, in doing that, that was possible. Elimelech's name was essentially blotted out from Israel. His name in the covenant people would not endure past his own death. Now, we live in the new covenant. And God doesn't promise us specific inheritance of parcels of land from our parents. However, we learn something. God was teaching his people through the Old Testament inheritance laws he was using that as a schoolmaster for his people to understand something important about belonging to him. 
Death is an enemy which sin introduced into the world, and it will certainly bring an end to all the blessings which a person has enjoyed. If you do not trust in Christ, you have still enjoyed many blessings from him. You have enjoyed the blessings of a king who you have rebelled against, who treats you kindly and patiently, though you are not his children, if you do not trust in Christ. He has still given you many blessings, every breath that you have taken, every dollar in that bank account, every bit of laughter, every bit of food. That has all been blessings from God, from a God who you are alienated against and whom you in your heart hate. And death will end all of those blessings. All of them. Except for the people of God whom he redeems from sin. Whom God adopts and cleanses and who belong to him by his own sworn covenant oath. The blessings and inheritance of God to his children cannot be ended by death. The Old Testament land inheritance laws, they communicated that very wonderfully. Death cannot rob a child of God of their inheritance from the Lord. Even the Old Testament people of God knew this. They were taught to trust in the God of the resurrection of the dead. They were trained to long for God to send a redeemer who would actually conquer death. Christ Jesus, the direct descendant of Naomi and Ruth and Elimelech, was that redeemer. On the cross, Jesus didn't merely conquer death by avoiding death, by staying alive. So you don't avoid losing the Stanley Cup by avoiding the Stanley Cup final. No, Christ conquered death on behalf of all all of his people by dying in their place, then rising from the dead on the third day. He took the inheritance that we naturally deserve because of our sin, death, so that we would be able to enjoy his inheritance forever without death ever being able to rob us of that inheritance. So all who repent of sin and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus are adopted into the family of God as God's children. And though we will die, we will certainly rise from the dead on the last day when Christ returns. His own resurrection secures ours because we are one with him eternally. And as much as this story is about Ruth and Naomi, it's largely about a man who is dead for most of the story. The Lord intends to redeem Elimelech to make sure Elimelech, a man who has died, to make sure that man's name is not blotted out from the book of his people. God cares about the dead and will make sure that the inheritance he gave to Elimelech will not be robbed even by his own death. So if you are in Christ by faith, you are in in, an eternal covenant with him and you do not need to fear death because it cannot rob you of the love and joy and blessing of God. This was the shame and sorrow which Naomi suffered. The bitterness she found herself in. She was suffering pain 
separated from the sweetness of the household of God, and death seemingly able to rob her of God's blessings. This is where God found her in order to redeem her. Thomas Watson, who lived from 1620 to 1686, very helpfully said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. We cannot fully know the sweetness of Naomi's redemption until we know the bitterness which the Lord redeems her from. Sometimes the gospel is seen as just an additive to a life to make it better. Or sometimes it's seen that actually the gospel is a burden, that somebody's fine, but now there's an extra commandment. God says now you, you, in order to avoid hell, you now have to believe in the gospel. As if this is something that God has added for a burden or a command. He's found us doing just perfectly fine, and now there's this extra burden of having to believe in the gospel. This is not the picture of redemption that the Bible paints for us at all. The Bible paints a picture of us living outside the family of God, outside of its blessings, no claim to eternal life, only claim to judgment and wrath from God for our sin. But God redeems those people. He doesn't redeem the healthy. He redeems the sick. He doesn't redeem the guiltless. He redeems the guilty. He doesn't redeem people who are already children of God. He redeems enemies and makes them children. The Lord uses the life of Naomi and Ruth and Elimelech to bring to our attention the pain of being away from the household of God, as well as the reality that death threatens to rob us of God's blessings. And many people assume that they are children of God. Many people assume that they know him. And many people assume that the promises found in Scripture are their precious promises. But they're not. Many people spend much time avoiding the, the thought of the truth that they will one day die and at that point face judgment for their sin. That death not only threatens to rob them of all good things, but it certainly will do that. And so the account from the Lord about the suffering of Naomi reminds us that this is the plight, this is the bitterness that belongs to all people. And we will do well to let it remind us of the bitterness which sin has brought us to. The Lord also intends to use this account to remind his people that though this is the bitterness in which he found us, it is a bitterness which he swears to turn to sweetness for those who trust in Christ. And through the events of the book of Ruth, the Lord will come several steps closer to his plan to bring the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who will be a descendant of them, of Ruth and Naomi. And so if you do not know Christ, if you've not repented of your sin and called out for Christ to rescue you by his death and resurrection from the dead, let this story remind you of the certainty that because of your sin against his commands, you stand outside of God's household as an enemy and death will rob you of all the blessings which he has let you enjoy even as his enemies. 
Let that bitterness sink in. In a world that wants to distract you and entertain you, let this story remind you of this bitterness, which you need to be found in by God and redeemed from. And let it do its work so that you will flee to Christ for the sweetness of his salvation. Belonging to the household of God with an inheritance which cannot be snuffed out by death. Now, for those of you who know the Lord, brothers and sisters, let this account from the mouth of God remind you of the sweetness that you even now enjoy the sweetness of being part of his household, the sweetness of suffering in the household, the family of God, as children of God. It is far sweeter than riches and delights outside of God's household. And let this remind you that God has redeemed you of your sin, of the stains of your sin, of the judgment of it, and the shame of it when he laid those things on Christ. And whatever shame is yours because of your sin, or even because of the sin of others, or the shame of the world because of what it thinks about you for being someone who trusts in Christ and waits for him, Christ has sworn that he surely will turn your shame into honor. For him to fail to do so would be to deny himself because he is our redeemer, the bridegroom of the church, who not only has promised to remove our shame and bear it in himself, but who has already done it. It is a shame which will lead to death to be outside the household of God. And that is where Christ found us. But thanks be to God, Jesus sought us when we were strangers wandering from the fold of God. And let this remind you that your hope and joy and blessings cannot be ended by death. But God has conquered and captured death. And now he uses death against its will as a servant which ushers us into the inheritance which is ours in Christ Jesus, Naomi's descendant, born in Bethlehem, who is the bread of life, whom we eat by faith and will be satisfied and glorified and live forever. Let this call us to treasure the people of God, the family of God, reminding us of the gift which God has given in them to turn our hearts and affection toward him in response to his love and affection, they remind us and we remind them that we love him because he loved us first and gave himself up for us while we were strangers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful as we consider the depths which, which you, from which you have called us, which you have found us. Lord, we did not find you. You found us. We were not savable. We were not children who have just found ourselves in a bad circumstance. Because of our sin in Adam and ongoing sin and breaking your commands, we 
were outside of your house, outside of your household, and the incredible love that you've shown to us, that while we were your enemies, you sent Christ to suffer for our sin, to experience the pain of being an enemy on the cross so that we could experience the eternal joy of being your children. And Lord, let the reminder of that bitterness make the sweetness of redemption in Christ more sweet. And would you receive more and more and more praise and glory and awe and wonder. And may our joy in that redemption increase because of this. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.